Welcome to Financial Planet Explained. I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planner Planning. Don't even know the long company name. Um, I am here with two of my associates. All the way to my right is Ryan Keefe, and to my immediate right is uh, Kyle Ryan, also a Certified Financial Planner. Congratulations to Kyle, who just recently passed his uh, tests and certification to become a chartered financial consultant on top of it. So congratulations, Kyle. Thank you. Uh, so anyway, uh, we have been having multiple um, shows on investments. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had, uh, for two consecutive weeks, we had Thomas Bayless, who is our chief investment officer, um, and we we're getting really into the weeds about the economy and where things are going, as well as the impacts that it has on the stock and bond markets. And subsequent to that, we had an episode uh, that was timely because we were talking about student loan forgiveness, which kind of interrupted our going through and having episodes now that we're talking and taking questions and answers on questions that are asked of us either by clients or just through the internet. We look for questions and answers because it provides the opportunity to kind of launch a topic out there that we can talk about because the objective of the show is to provide an educational experience for the viewers. And so here we are. So the last episode, we found ourselves, we got through four questions, which is funny. It's really three and a half because the one was part of it. But anyway, so uh, we're going to pick up the same and, and do the same thing. So you guys ready? Yep. All yes, right, sir. let's roll. So first question, what's the difference between ETFs and mutual funds? Um, just got this question from a client the other day, too, on top of it. Uh, who wants to tackle this one? Ryan, you want to grab it? I'd be happy to, yeah. Um, so uh, mutual funds, uh, let's start by breaking down what a mutual fund really is. And essentially, a mutual fund is a, you know, a, a fund that is comprised of a multitude of stocks. And depending on the fund company, they can determine how many stocks they would like to have in their fund. And usually, each fund has an edict of whether they're a growth a growth fund where they invest in just technology and fast-paced stocks or a value fund where they focus on more your dividend paying, you know, blue chip companies. You can be an international fund, a bond fund. There's, you know, any litany of things that you could have in your mutual fund. Um, and what their goal is, is through this diversification of stocks is to give you a much smoother ride and rate of return um, on your investment. Um, typically, mutual funds are something that you're going to see you know, in your 401k or retirement plan. Um, and in order to manage these funds, these mutual funds charge what is referred to as an expense ratio. It's um, cost of keeping the cost, lights on. And yeah, the and paying and the that. analysts and stuff um, to, to manage the fund. And usually, uh, depending on the fund, they're more actively managed uh, by these teams where they're, you know, routinely buying and selling different funds um, that they like and don't like. Um, and then you look at ETFs. ETFs are very similar to mutual funds um, in that they're comprised of a multitude of stocks as well. But generally speaking, um, at least in the past, ETFs have been much more passively managed and therefore have a lower expense ratio than mutual funds. Um, ETFs are also, you know, they have edicts as, edicts as well where they're going to follow, you know, a certain category or asset class. Um, and ETFs and mutual funds differ in uh, you know, how they settle. So when you sell them, uh, mutual fund, it's T plus one, you get your money back. The um, next day. The next day. And then ETFs are T plus two. So you got to wait an extra business day. Um, so the biggest difference between ETFs and mutual funds, 
is ETF trades during a day. Right. S like a stock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you see that the market's tanking at 10 o'clock in the morning and you wanted to get out, you get out at what that price is right now. Right. A mutual fund, you're at the mercy of what the value of a fund, the value of a mutual fund is that they take the underlying, all of the stocks that are owned in that fund, add them all up, divide it by the number of shares, and that's the share price, but it's not until the end of the day. And so the big issue that I have found, I was never a big fan of ETFs, but I'm becoming one more mm -hmm. so lately because I'm a believer in active management. management. Um, mutual funds distribute capital gains at the end of the year, and it's, it's a rule. It's a rule that they have to do. I mean, the thing is, is that you figure if during the course of the year they're buying and selling stocks, if they've sold for gains, by rule, they have to distribute the gains to the shareholders. Now, the other thing about a mutual fund and ETFs where they're similar is that, as you pointed out, it's a basket of investments. Mm -hmm. It enables a small-time investor, like you said, 401k. This is what you see mutual funds in 401ks. Mm -hmm. It enables a small-time investor to put $100 a week or every two weeks or whatever and get exposure to, to a mutual fund or an ETF that might have 100 different stocks. Mm -hmm. For 100 bucks, you can't get your hands on 100 different stocks. Not to mention, the mutual funds have active management. They can interview with the president of the company, the CEO. Right. So, but the, the the big difference is the trading during trading the day. Trading throughout the day. And at the end of the year, you know, we've gotten burned. And I forgot what year this was. There was a year. Wasn't two thousand eight. Um, there was a year where the markets were down. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't that tick you off if the market, I think it might have been 2000. Certainly it was in 2000, mm -hmm. okay? You bought a mutual fund during the course of the year, and let's say you paid $10,000 for it. It finishes the year down to 9000 and then you get a tax bite on top <laughs> of it. Like, how do I, how come I have to <laughs> pay capital? From? Yeah, how come yeah. I have to pay capital gains? So yeah. that's where I'm beginning to embrace it. It only really makes a difference in a non-qualified account. Right. but. Uh, as Ryan pointed out, the the uh, main difference really is that they're, they're both similar in that they're diversified investments. And one other thing I'd add is, you know, ETFs traditionally are, like you mentioned, you know, they're cheaper than mutual funds. Um, and alongside with being able to trade them throughout the day, you can do a little bit more advanced trading strategies with them. You know, if I've got an ETF at 100 and I'm like, I don't want a piece of this yet, I'll wait until it hits $90. I can do that, I can set a limit order so that I buy that at $90. You can't do that with a mutual fund. Similarly, you know, you can set, there's just a lot of different advanced strategies you can do with ETFs that you can automate the process of either buying it or selling it based right. on different trends. And it adds a lot more flexibility having ETFs, which traditionally, you know, we, that, that didn't exist there compared to mutual funds. And, mm -hmm. and we're really beginning to embrace that because we're finding now in, in, a, in an environment where the markets are going down, is we'll do bottom fishing, you know. Uh, similarly is... You sell options on ETFs. Right, sell mm -hmm. options. You could put yeah. orders that if it gets above a certain limit, you sell it, which is what we were right. doing in July when the markets were going up. We weren't believers. It was like, all right, we'll put a limit order. If it sells, it sells. Right. 
and lo and behold, it sells, it drops after that. Had we not had that sell order in, the likelihood is we would still be sitting on it down low. So, so you're right, that's, uh, thanks for pointing it out. That's another added advantage, really beginning to embrace ETFs. And I think because of the competitive environment, yeah, there's a finite amount of money out there. Everybody's trying to get a piece of it. Mm -hmm. And ETFs will soon take over mutual funds because... I have heard people, and whether or not it becomes true, called mutual funds dinosaurs because as the competition increases to get to zero fees and active ma actively managed funds, I mean, if I don't have to pay for active management, I'm going to take it, right? right. If, I, if I believe right. in the management team. And that's right. kind of what you're seeing, you know, the investing world go to. The, the original... ETFs were the index funds. Yeah. Right. You know, I could just buy the S&P 500 mm -hmm. uh, as an index. That's fund. what they were meant to be. Right. But now they're saying, oh, well, I can do more active management. It's not quite as active, but they may say, we're going to do the dogs of the Dow. Mm -hmm. Okay, which means that they're going to buy the 10 worst Dow components from last year. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of each year, they're going to take the 10 worst because the thought process is, if it's the worst, gotta it's got to come off the bottom. Yep. <laughs> And then you've got you know, all kinds of different things. Right. The highest dividend paid. They'll right. take the top 10% of the S&P 500 who have the highest dividends, only them. Right. And so... One thing I will caution with ETFs is don't be swept away with the name of an ETF. <laughs> we, I've seen ETFs, you can call an ETF anything under the sun and then it owns a, ends up owning the biggest, you know, I've seen, uh, I don't know how much I can name a specific one, but I've seen one called like the vegan ETF and it owns Facebook, Apple, and it owns like technology stocks. And it's like, <laughs> they can just call them whatever they want. So don't get swept away by the name of an ETF. Yeah. Oh, the vegan needs the owns the beef and chicken companies? <laughs> that's funny. That's, that is absolutely true. So yeah, we're trying to stay away from naming any particular type because it's against the rules. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, all right, next question. How can I tell if my 401k investments are aligned with my risk tolerance? Which one of you guys wants to grab that? I can start that one off. That one's, um, that's a really good question. You know, one, it's, you know, you can almost ask yourself, how do you define your risk tolerance, which is a whole, you know, world in and of itself. Yeah. But um, what we always preach is that risk is defined by, you know, how much time you have, right? If I don't need my money for 40 years, I can afford to take risk, right? Market goes down this year, I'm not worried because I'm not selling out. Um, so being with your 401k, they actually have something called target date retirement funds. Yes. So if I am, if I'm 30 years old and I plan on retiring at 65, I've got 35 years, right? So it's going to have, you know, the 2065 target date retirement fund. And as we get closer to that date, it's going to slowly but surely become more conservative. Sell stocks, go to bonds, right? So that is one way that you can, you know, help manage the risk tolerance of your retirement account, specifically a 401k. And and one thing I've found when reviewing, uh, you know, through a third-party analysis tool of target date funds like that, um, a lot of times they're much more aggressive than people might think. You know, Certainly more aggressive than us and, and, and more and, aggressive than people think. You're and, right. and clients come in and they'll say, you know, on our scale one to ten, I'm a, I'm a four on the risk scale. Like, I don't want to lose my money, but I want to gain a little bit. And then you look at their target date retirement fund, which you know, 80% stocks. It's 80% stocks, and they, they thought, wow, I thought I was much more conservative than I am. Well, um, so answering your question, the risk tolerance, oftentimes 401ks have a tool that allow you to go through a risk tolerance questionnaire, and once you've gone through the questionnaire, then it can direct you to this particular portfolio. Um, 
401ks usually have a financial advisor associated with it. I would encourage you to pick up the phone and call the financial advisor associated mm -hmm. with the 401k. And we advise our clients all the time with their 401ks, even though we can't watch it and literally look at it daily like we might be with their other portfolios. Um, it, of course we guide them with their 401k, mm -hmm. you know, because you just want to make sure that they're adequately invested. And again, it goes back to one of our fundamental investment philosophy is diversification. Right. So uh, if you have a long time horizon, I have to throw this in there. I've seen people come to me with their 401ks ready to retire and they're invested in cash only <laughs> for their entire working life. Oh my goodness, um, I've seen that. It's oh. okay, you know, having cash allocations when the market is falling, teach their own, that's fine, but don't leave it there for years on end. <laughs> yeah. Right, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that any investment, you should be, should be monitoring it. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. it's, it's, 401k is more of a set and forget than other, you know, an IRA or an unqualified account, but still, you want to check in on it every now and then. And I would also say that if you know nothing and you don't have anybody that you can turn to, again, I'm a believer that financial advisors, good financial advisors, are worth their weight in gold. Um, I would find someone who can help you, and if you can't, then I would be looking at the target date retirement funds. Um, we're at our break now, so we will be back with you in just a few moments. Stay tuned. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary, no obligation consultation. A unique approach to financial planning. Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. Your host, Mike Menninger, certified financial planner here with uh, Kyle and Ryan. Going through uh, a lot of questions and answers that we've seen before and we seem to be going at a relatively slow pace. Um, but anyway, that's okay. You know, the fact is at the end of the day, uh, we're here to provide educational content. And so uh, we'll pick up with the next question. Uh, what does it mean when I hear that the yield curve is inverted. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll do it if you don't want to do it. Who wants no, it? I'm just saying it's an uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, right. that's right. It's usually, it's a good point. When you say uh-oh, that's typically an indicator that we got a recession coming. All it means when a yield curve is inverted, you're normally a yield curve, what it is is it measures what's the interest rate of the three-month bond, the treasuries, the nine-month the one year, the two year, the five year, the 10 year, the 30 year, and normally it's an upward slope, meaning that the 30 year interest is higher than the 10 year, which is higher than the five year, and so on and so forth. Mm. Inverted yield curve is when some of the earlier interest rates are higher than yeah. the later ones. It goes back mm. to, you know, when you were discussing bonds, you know, how does a bond work? You, you get more 
but if you are required to take longer to get your money back, if I'm not getting my money back for 30 years, I better make more money that's than correct. if I get it back yeah. in a year, right? So that's if if the opposite is happening, if I'm getting more money for a two-year bond than I am a 10-year bond, that is usually indicative that economic growth is going to be worse in the long term than it is in the short term. Right, and there's fear that I'm not going to get my money back. Yep. <laughs> okay. So, um, but anyway, so so that's typically an indicator of a recession. So, you know, we had this happen to us a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it was pre-COVID, mm-hmm. where the the yield curve was being inverted, and there was the concern because it's typically an indicator of a recession. But we didn't end up going in a recession. Right. So it's kind of good. I like bucking those trends. <laughs> but I think we have pretty good reason to believe that we may be going into a recession this time. All right, what else we got? Throw that grenade out there. <laughs> uh, you know what? It is. Uh, we talked about this in a previous episode or earlier. Why do growth-oriented stocks perform poorly when interest rates rise? Well, I guess I'm going to clarify that question. Poorly? I mean, how do they underperform against yeah. their counterparts? Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to what, what you said in the prior episode, where when interest rates are rising, those are going to hurt companies that mainly their stock price is driven by their evaluation. Right. And if, if interest rates are rising, it's hurting their ability to borrow money and grow faster. And for all those reasons, that's generally why. But we did answer this previously. Yes. So I don't, I don't think right. The growth stocks are the high PE stocks. You know, your, your technology companies, mm-hmm. which are typically the biotechs, the technology companies, those are the ones that typically have the higher PE. Mm-hmm. I always like to say, like the old days in boxing, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Yep. All right. Why is this a bad environment for investing in bonds? Well, we talked about that, too. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Rising interest rate environment, the value of bonds go down. Doesn't mean you completely abandon the space in a diversified portfolio, though. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's correct, because they provide a ballast against stocks. Right. You know, under normal circumstances, <laughs> which... We always buck the bonds going down ten percent in six months is a normal. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, exactly. But yeah, typically bonds and stocks react the opposite of each other, in that when stocks are doing great, bonds are doing poorly. However, when there is an event driving both of them to react the same way, it's the rapid, yeah, it's a rapid rise in interest rates. All right. Next question. The long-term average return of the S&P 500 is 12%. Okay? 11 or 12, somewhere yeah, there. It's around that. Yeah. And the long-term average return of the 60-40 portfolio is 8%. So why in a world would I go after an 8% portfolio? I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> why would I do an 8% portfolio when I could do 12 that's kind of an easy question. <laughs> I, I could throw that one out there. That's easy. Yeah. Still, looks like you're ready to jump on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it comes back to the single largest component of risk is time. You know, if, if you're a young guy like Kyle and I, you have all the time in the world whoa, to be whoa, like, whoa, whoa. this guy. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't say anything. <laughs> you were just saying you're old. You might be medium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm medium. <laughs> we have all this time horizon where we can, even though the long-term rate of return is 12%, that could be, you know, you go up 50% in one year and 25% down the next year, and over the, the ride, you average out to 12. Um, if you need your money in a year from now, you're not taking the chance that that could drop 25 plus percent. 
you want to make sure your money is relatively stable. And that's why you diversify and have, you know, as you said just in the last answer, you have bonds and, and stocks, and usually they act inversely to each other. Right. So when stocks are performing poorly, your bonds are, are you know, mitigating the blow a little bit, and when stocks are doing really well, your bonds are probably lagging because people are selling their bonds to get in on the party and join stocks. Well, the other thing, too, is you know, we can talk about it because we have the emotional disconnect. Mm -hmm. But if someone is risk averse and they just flat out, they want growth, but boy, I'll tell you what, if that account's going down repetitively or wild swings, mm -hmm. if they can't stomach wild swings, then they shouldn't be fully into the stock market. Yeah, yeah. If, if you want a 12% return and it's going well, but you sell as soon as there's a 20% dip, then you know you you just gave up all your returns. Right. And again, right. if if you're if you don't like having down statements, and it really gives you angst, mm -hmm. then you don't belong in a 100% stock, 60-40 which is 60% stocks, 40% bonds, smoothens out the ride. And right. there can be any combination of that. You know, it's, it's referred to as the growth and in income piece, so it's just more stable ride. Yes, mm -hmm. yep, exactly. All right, next. What are the investments that generally perform best when the economy is starting to come out of a recession? That's a good one. Well, this could be very timely, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, got to go into the recession before go into you come the, out of yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. But... Um, yeah, generally speaking, there are uh, asset classes that historically have performed better when the economy is coming out of the recession. What are those uh, companies? Um, you know, small cap companies are generally poised to do really well. Why? Because when the, you know, the market's about to take off, you want to get in at a good buying price for these small companies, and they're the guys that can accelerate and grow, you know, quicker quicker than these larger yes, companies. Of course. Um, you know, uh, historically speaking, value companies have also done really well coming out of recessions. Uh, things like, you know, your Procter & Gamble's, your, your big blue chip companies, uh, you know, your financial companies, things like of that nature. Right, exactly. And again, going back to the small cap, you know, the, they're the ones who probably took it in the shorts the hardest. Mm -hmm. And typically coming out of a recession, the uh, interest rates are lower because the Fed is trying to boost the economy by lowering interest rates, mm -hmm. the small guy benefits more from right. that. Makes it easier for them to borrow money right. and, and to grow. expand. And, yeah. Right, exactly. A little guy can double in size a whole lot quicker than, you know. Apple. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's tough for them to, to grow. All right. Uh, how often should I be rebalancing my 401k? No more than quarterly? No yeah. less than annually? I yeah. mean, those are just kind of general rules of thumb. You don't want to be staring at it, but you don't want to fall asleep at the wheel. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah I think. Fair to say. Yeah, I think it's a fair, fair yeah. statement. And I, interestingly enough, rebalancing is kind of funny because what you're doing is if, let's say you have a 50-50 portfolio and the one is up really high and the other one's down, it goes against, like, I don't want to sell that when it's doing well. And I certainly don't want to buy the dog. But in fact, what are you actually doing? Buying low and Buy selling low high. And selling high. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yep. All right, last question, and I really like this question, and I'm glad we got to it. Um, what is the Series I savings bond? Kyle, I'm going to give that one to you because I know you've done a lot of helping clients with it. 
Oh, yeah, this has been something that since last November we've been working a lot with. So the Series I savings bond is pretty cool. It works only because we talked about it recently. It works similarly to a CD, but it's not. It's, it's um, issued by the federal government, so the interest that you get is guaranteed. You cannot lose money on it because it is issued by the government, guaranteed. So how do they work? They give you an interest rate that corresponds with inflation. Mm -hmm. As we all know, inflation is incredibly high right now. Um, it gets repriced every November and May. So as inflation goes up or down, as we reach those cycles, it will give you a new interest rate. How does it work? You can put up to $10,000 in there. Per you year get, or per person? Per, per year, per person. You're a married couple, you can get $20,000 in. You got two kids and you want to put it in for them. You, they have to have their own accounts, but you can put $10,000 in for them. You can get an extra $5,000 from your tax return, but that's not as commonly used if you get a refund. Um, but how does it work? You have to own it for at least a year. Right, so you have to own this uh, tr Series I bond for at least a year before you can even try and sell it. Right. If you own it for more than five years and you sell it, you get everything you put into it and all your interest. You don't you don't get any penalty. No tax. Right. You know, there's no penalty on it. If you take it in between one and five years, you lose three months of interest. Whoop de do. Right. So if I hold it for 15 months, a year and three months, and I got nine percent the whole way through, I made nine percent guaranteed for a year that's that's incredible yeah. right so it gets taxed right it is taxable just like any interest you make at a, at a bank um, and you know I, I think it's a great great use of if you've got money sitting in the bank you want to be inflation go here I will say um, there is a certain hassle to it, it takes a little bit to set up the account um, and if you are it you have to do it through treasurydirect.gov you can't do it through a paper process or an application it has to be online so I've helped some folks with that who aren't very tech savvy. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, fact of the matter is, is that inflation beater, I suppose. That's another one that we really didn't say. But it's, you know, if you got a million dollar IRA, it's kind factor. of spitting in the ocean for one. Yeah. Okay. The hassle factor. But then again, you can't do it with IRA assets. You can only do it with after tax, like checking account, non-qualified type of assets. And again, it's the hassle factor. But hey, you know, 9.62%. Uh, it, it beats with my savings account right, right now, I'll tell you that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So anyway, that's all we've got for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining. I hope that something during the course of today has been helpful, that you learned something, because that's the purpose of the show, Financial Planning Explained, and we've been dealing with investments. So uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you have a great day and great rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you.